Hi, thanks so much for tuning into the Nonprofit Mastermind Podcast. Each week, I do a deep dive into the strategies and mindset behind launching, scaling, and leading a high-impact nonprofit. This is the third installment of my short series, revisiting some of the incredible conversations I've had with folks as part of my next normal series at the beginning of this year. As so many of us continue to grapple with the implications of COVID for how we work and how we lead, I wanted to revisit the idea of leadership in this next normal that's being created. This week, I'm revisiting some of the most thought-provoking and inspiring conversations I had about leading in a sustainable way. What does it mean and look like to lead in a way that both fuels us and centers and honors our whole selves? These conversations are with Kishana Palmer, Chitra Iyer, and the Reverend Dr. Emma Jordan Simpson. We talk about the weight of leadership, we talk about mental health, and we talk about how we can and should think about sustainability as a value rather than an outcome in our lives and our organizations. Enjoy. I'm really excited to continue the conversation we were just having before I hit record, although we were talking about manifestation and not sustainability. <laughs> <laughs> and all of the woo things that you were surprised to learn that I'm really into. So what I wanted to chat with you about today is this idea of sustainable leadership. And I think I mentioned to you that I've been wanting to talk to people about what it actually means to practice leadership in a way that is sustainable. What do we mean by sustainable? Should sustainability even be the goal? I've been thinking a lot about sustainability, particularly as we make our way through this pandemic. So it's just a topic that's very front of mind to me. And I thought I would kick us off just sort of going to the heart of the question. When I say sustainable leadership, what comes up for you? What does sustainability in the context of leading a nonprofit even mean in your mind? I've been thinking about it since you told me we were going to talk about sustainability. And I've been wondering whether one can be sustainable within the context of leadership of one nonprofit or sustainability feels like it requires a longer timeline. Because to me, sustainable, I think, is sort of an ability to meet present needs without compromising future needs, right? And I feel like it requires a long view. And so I think one can have a sustainable career, I think, in the sector. I think it is hard and challenging to be a sustainable leader of a nonprofit in some ways because the frame is too small. Because I think sustainability requires some give and take and some ebbs and flows. And I think it is hard to do that. I think it requires learning lessons. I think there's just a lot of learning and applying and iteration. And I think sometimes it can happen within one organization and being a leader. But I think more that it might be like sort of over the course of time and maybe in different organizations or maybe long enough in an organization or maybe entering an organization at a much wiser state where you're able to apply stuff that you've learned before. That's interesting. So wisdom. One of the things I wanted to talk about was what props up sustainability, right? What fuels it? And you referenced wisdom. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by enter an organization in a wiser state? <laughs> wiser than I have. Earlier in our careers, exactly. Earlier. <laughs> Very early in our careers. Definitely first time as EDs for both of yes. us when we met. I don't know how wise of a state we were in. So one is, I don't know if you can acquire wisdom. Like you have to go through experiences and many of them need to be challenging in order to realize here's how to do things 
better or here's how to do things to your point sustainably. Mm. I don't know that better, like sustainably again is a long view. And I think that often means that, you know, the one year that you have to write a grant report about funding you received or your first 90 days when you are a new executive director and you want to show that you know what you're doing. I think the short term need to demonstrate results makes it hard to be sustainable. There's something in my mind, there is a knowing that's like, you know what, I'm not going to be able to get all these results out in 90 days or even in a year because things take time. And I know that when I was a new executive director, I didn't know that. So it wasn't even that I knew it and didn't have the courage to say it. It didn't even occur to me that it might take more than a year. And that there's also the, what are the things that are visible of being like, I'm a good executive director. Look at all our programs or look at all the way I've grown the organization. There is a way in which one, I think, fixates on what's the visible, easy things, these measures that are not necessarily great measurements of long-term success, but are sort of short-term. And I think what I have learned is that you need to have a much longer view. And in some ways, you have to potentially issue some of these things, right? It's not that you get to do both, right? That you get all these short-term shiny successes and a long-term things. There are trade-offs. And I think a sustainable leader knows that and is able to name it and not feel that they have to, I think, have measurements and results that feel reasonable and that go towards the long-term. And I think in the absence of that, we get fixated on short-term goals that I don't think they always hinder us getting the long-term, but I don't know that they always contribute to it either. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I hear a couple of things there. One, this whole theme of wisdom learning that we learn what sustainability means to each of us as we practice leadership. I may not know what it's going to mean to sustain myself in this role in the first 90 days or in the first nine years, right? That I'm learning mm-hmm. as I go, what trade-offs work for me. I remember when I was stepping down and from my role as ED and you and I were talking about just my sort of psychologically preparing for the next leader to come in behind me, particularly having been a founder. And I'm going to get the quote wrong, but basically you were just like, everybody thinks that they're crazy is normal, right? Like you, <laughs> you're like, I had crafted a give and take balance, right? Mm-hmm. A, a flow that worked for me. That mm-hmm. and I was learning after 10, 11, 12 years, how to sustain myself in the world, just starting to learn and was very afraid that sort of the next person wasn't going to be able to sustain. You're like, they're not, right? Like they're going to have to learn their own. So mm-hmm. I definitely hear that. The other thing though, that I hear that's interesting is this idea of us as leaders fixating on the sort of short-term indicators of success, indicators that we're doing a good job. And some of that feels like work we have to do personally, bravery and knowing our own zones of genius. But a lot of that also strikes me as structural. Sure. That there's a reason that I feel like I have to report out on impact in year increments because I do, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because that's what funders are yeah. asking for. What do you think is the interplay between sort of our own work to do our work sustainably and the pressures or the structures that are in place that maybe undermine that? Yeah. I mean, I think if we take as a starting point, the nonprofit sector and then the broader society is not geared towards sustainability, right? Nothing is, whether that be our clothes or our economy or the environment, there's nothing, right? So the nonprofit sector reflects kind of a broader societal norm so that 
to advocate for sustainability means to challenge sort of norms, whether that is like, I'm going to have a smaller house and recycle, right? Like at some point, which seems countercultural. And so I think that's a starting point. And I think if you come in as a new leader and you come in as a woman of color, I think to try and challenge what are the measurements of success by positing other measures, I think is really hard. I also think like, again, and I want to be like, for me, it wasn't that I was like, oh, I really want to develop infrastructure, right? And I think that came much later, thanks to you in large part, right? This realization of investing in systems. I don't think I thought I want to do this, but I can't. It didn't occur to me. So there's a default in the way that you know that you're doing a good job. For example, if you inherit an organization is if you grow programs, for example, you're like, I'm serving more people, which is a good thing. And it's a way to be like, look, I've grown the organization and it sort of satisfies a lot of people's needs to feel like it's growing. But there are trade-offs. And I think... Costs. Yeah, there's costs of things you can't do. And once you have started Hive, like, look, look, I've doubled the size of the organization. It's very hard, I think, to backtrack and be like, oh, but we need a database. Like there are things that are not visible. So I think the hard thing is a lot of things around sustainable organizations are internal internal investments that aren't visible. And so if you've started making things visible, you want to keep that going and do the internal. And I think it takes a long time to be like, oh, there is a trade-off because you kind of want to keep believing that there isn't, that you'll somehow do both. And occasionally it works out, but I don't know that it does always. And I think the structural piece is to have the courage to say, I'm going to make a choice to make investments right now. And I believe that these will pay off because there isn't a guarantee is really hard. And I think in my situation, right, you came, I was like, you know what my secret weapon is? Brooke. (laughs) Brooke Richie Babbage will come and speak to my board because I needed some bolstering of, do we feel good about making investments? Because it's hard, I think, for anyone associated with an organization to take a pause on the things that are visible. Even if everybody believes on investing, it's hard to do it. For me, sustainability is really about being able to see not just what works for you now, but what's going to work for you down the road where you can't see. So my dad used to always talk about not cutting off your nose to spite your face. Oh, yeah. I got that one a lot, too. (laughs) (laughs) And we get the story of a Nancy and how a Nancy used to save and all the things. My family's Jamaican. And so lots of the Mm -hmm. stories about being able to hold a little bit for Mm. a rainy day. And so when I think about it as it relates to leadership, for me, it's are you putting stuff in your toolkit? Oh, I love it. So that when you reach in and you reach in and you reach in and you reach in, (laughs) you're not touching the bottom like, wait a minute, there's nothing else. Do you have enough for a rainy day? Are you building the kind of team Are you growing the kind of company? Are you aligning yourself with the types of people and partnerships that will help you not to just survive, but to thrive? And so that sustainability aspect is about the things that continue to feed you. One thing I love about that is when I was leading my team at my organization, I used to use the example of a cup, a mug. You're going to drink from the mug, right? 
Yes. Your toolkit. You want to make sure it's full. You want to make sure that there's something there for you to drink from to replenish yourself. And also you want to make sure that it's filled with healthy things, water or whatever the thing is. So I really love that idea of sustainability being about making sure that you have something to return to. I mentioned when we first started talking that I'm on your newsletter list and I got your email a few weeks back about burnout and about Mm -hmm. feeling of maybe having pushed a little too hard and actually really thinking in your head, do I have enough to keep going? And I've listened to your podcast, your launch. I was really excited. You talk about leadership making us sick. For those of you absolutely check out the first three episodes are (laughs) fantastic. Oh my God. But both of those messages, I believe in synchronicities. Like I think you hear the same message over and over because you're Mm -hmm. in the universe. And I paid attention to the theme there, which is the way that we lead is up to us. Yes. Attention to when it's making us sick. Why have you been focusing on this issue of healthy leadership recently? I think my health, my mental health, my physical health, my spiritual health have all been sort of under siege Mm, since I went to college. Probably before that, but I think when you're a teenager, everything feels like you're under siege. Yeah, I don't know. I can't differentiate. But I can start at the moment where, as I started to think about my professional path, one of the things that I have probably said a couple of times before, but I think surprises folks when I say it, is that I didn't actually have any goals about what I wanted to do with my life. Me. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to get married, which was for me a big goal, and have children, which for me, that was it. I was like, and I will figure out the rest. Now, to know me is to know that there's always a scheme. There's always a new opportunity to create. I knew I'd have my hands full with family, but I didn't really see myself as a career person. I really didn't have an aspiration to that. My dream growing up was to be a singer. And when that dream didn't happen quite the way I'd planned, you know. And often the case with adulthood. <laughs> correct. And my parents were like, you're going to business school. It's good for you and your dreams and your record deals. I didn't know what to do with myself. And I didn't know enough at the time to know, like, no, you should just push through that. Figure that out. Anywho, so I realized that my desire to prove myself, but to whom wasn't ever really clear for me and to live up to the dreams that other people had for me, I think really started to eclipse my ability to think about what I wanted for myself when the first dream I had didn't pan out in the way that I would want it to. And so what ended up happening is that I just ended up working myself to death multiple times. Like, how many times does one person need to be hospitalized for something similar before you just like kind of throw in the towel? Like, really? Yeah. Like, so you don't learn. And the way lessons come to you, they come to you as a pebble the first time, Brooke. You know this. Yes. And you don't learn it. Oh, you wanted to come back again as a rock? Excellent. You oh, no, you didn't learn that? Throw a boulder if it has to. Come on, boulder. Right? Yes. <laughs> Thankfully, my boulder did not come in the form of a heart attack or a stroke or something that really affects women and particularly Black women. But it did come in the form of severe arthritis in my spine, which I have now. And my vision really changing rapidly, particularly over the last year, having chronic bronchitis when I was traveling every spring, like so much so that the urgency center folks would be like, oh, Kachana's back for her springtime tune-up. That is not okay. That's not what we want. Part of the reason I think I was able to get a COVID diagnosis so fast at the beginning of the pandemic last year is because I went to the place I always go and they were like, it's you. <laughs> Let's just look, you know? They're like, we see you every year, but this is a different thing. This is the thing. So... I started to realize that I was not living the thing I was teaching fully. Mm. And I was afraid to live the thing that I was teaching fully. 
And being a hypocrite is so not my jam. Like I run to the hills away from that. But I didn't know how to do it long term. I knew how to make the announcement, do the challenge, post about my green juice, my green juice, y'all, my green juice. But Brooke, you know how this gets when you get busy and you get on that hamster wheel, when you are a high performer, when people can come to rely on you, when you are a person who does what you say you will do, even to the detriment of yourself. God, how easy it is for us to get into that rhythm and not slow down enough to go. The person who you are not holding up or holding yourself accountable to is you, ma'am. Get your life. And so your body keeps the score and it just starts to just tally you in the ring. So that's why being able to start to narrate those conversations became so important to me. And because I have a big personality, it throws people off to understand that I actually carry a lot of pain, right? Because I'm always smiling and it's genuine. It throws people off because they think they see how I work. They imagine all of you. Yes, exactly. And to what end do I show up on stage? Do I show up on screen? Do I show up for clients? Do I show up for my kid? Do I show up for my household? But I'm not showing up for myself. From a sustainability perspective, I realized that I was running someone else's race, but I, for a second, could not tell you who. And so the day that you read that newsletter, people think that I plan my newsletters. Like we plan a lot of our social media stuff with intention, y'all. But I don't actually do that part. I write it almost every Friday. I sit down in the afternoon. I write whatever happened that week, which is why it always feels like it's happening right now. Because it's it very is. authentic. Absolutely. And that day I was like, I quit. <laughs> I was like, is there an OnlyFans account for women of a certain age <laughs> who had to wear a brace? <laughs> I know there is. I know someone out there, Brooke, wants that. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's so many things about what you're saying that are just so deeply resonating with me as a Black woman, as a woman who has led other institutions, mm-hmm. my own, is a high performer. The hamster wheel is, you can know the, the tactics, right? The things to do. And I just love, one of the things you're highlighting about sustainability is that we have to lift ourselves above the tactics, above the actions, above the best practices and the... Yes board meetings and the checklists to actually look at the whole picture and include ourselves in the whole picture. There's a quote that my friend Kemi shared with me, just because someone carries it well, doesn't mean it isn't heavy. Hello. I wrote that on my wall. I love that. That's another thing that I hear you saying, which is part of sustainability, whether we're talking about sustainable leadership or just sustaining ourselves, Mm -hmm. I think is recognizing that for ourselves, just because we carry it well, doesn't mean it's it isn't heavy exactly if we were to do that to take a step back think about the economy of leadership the economy of warriors the economy of skills and the economy of gifts. It helps us to also rebuke that very white supremacist value of the individual loan savior kind of thing, right? But you see yourself as a part of an economy of solution. And maybe not even solution because that solution is very small. Mm -hmm. You see yourself as a part of the economy of the efforts that are about like creating the kind of world that we want to live in. 
And when we are only are working in our area and we don't know or are not connected with or in conversation with the folks who are working in the rest of the, <laughs> it limits our vision. It also makes us feel like failures because we do need to have the people who, in the example that you use, we do need to have the people who kick ass at sitting with people in pain. Their work becomes that much more meaningful when they are in conversation and relationship with the people who are like dismantling and like rebuilding systems. We're not rewarded for organizing the pursuit of justice in that way. We're rewarded for that single, lone, individual, charismatic Martin Luther King. (laughs) And that's what wears us out. We can't sustain that. So part of, I think, a vision of sustainability really is about resisting, fitting into these models that are not trying to change anything. Like they want to help. Mm-hmm. They don't want to change it. So if we really want a world where parents can raise their children in a healthy environment, there's a whole lot of stuff that we have to do that it has nothing to do. You know what I mean? Like that means divesting people and having people divest from the benefits of the kind of world that we've created where families are penalized. I mean, but that goes poor. back to your point about power. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is cynical, but it is rare in my experience over the last few decades of doing social justice work that I have seen people willingly divest themselves, right? <laughs> right? I'm not going to say never because we both have been blessed to work in partnership with people who, mm-hmm. as they come to understand their role in propping up systems that don't work, work to fix that and work mm-hmm. to shift their role. Mm-hmm. I just don't know that that's most people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. that's where the internal work, I think, comes in so that it doesn't feel like a battle. Trying to like rest power from the hands of, because that's something that if we think about it in terms of winning and losing, we will never win. Mm-hmm. That sort of mm-hmm. wrenching power away from people. That's exhausting. It's violent. So there has to be a better way. Again, I'm pulling back to look at the economy of like, who are the folks you're journeying with? And not just like us as individuals, but the fields, like who are we journeying with? And the value of, you know, I'll just call it like prophetic voices, the value of influencers, the value of young people who are not beholden to the politics of respectability. (laughs) How you say that, yeah. All of that, like it all works together because power has to be made to feel uncomfortable, totally uncomfortable. And it is not my job alone or anyone's job, but we do need to have the people who, you know, yeah, you come in and you're able to get this slice of whatever and someone else is able to get this thing. But then you also have the folks who are able to come in and make life a living hell (laughs) and people then give up. You know what I mean? Like you need all of that. I think that we certainly need to be mindful about, so how do you hire? Who's on your board? Who's in your network? We need it all. And for me then, diversity and all of that, it is so much more than the way that we talk about it in these nonprofit organizations. 
It is so much more because we don't intentionally go after the people who will make your ass uncomfortable and nothing changes if we are not made totally uncomfortable. Agitate before you can. Mm -hmm. One of my friends who is a VP of a foundation, they fund youth charter schools, youth stuff, you know, blah, blah, blah. And a woman, and she said to me, the sadness that I carry is because on the one hand, I know that I'm getting resources to places where people need to have resources. She says, but on the other hand, I also know that those who control the kind of resources that change the game in my foundation, they don't want to change the game. They want to help. They want to mitigate. They don't want to change. So she's sort of like walking with the I feel like I'm a bridge in some ways, but then also like these people make me want to kill them. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how long you can sustain that, but you know. <laughs> well, there's real cognitive dissonance there. Yeah. I mean, that is a hard thing to balance. I mean, yeah. I think that's to this question of like how long you can sustain it. I mean, that's the question. To Particularly me. when you're the only one. Exactly. When you're the only one. I think that we have undervalued the folks who have no obligation to respectability. So in the world of my faith community, we could be on a course of very nice, progressive change that really is bullshit until someone comes in who hurts and who gives no fucks, like is zero about protocol. And it's not until you, I was going to say make room for Ping, because that's not the case, you know, It's not until people who are hurting also have power that change actually happens. That's even a cycle because then often what happens is that people who have pain, who get power, then begin to accommodate and institutionalize. And then it's like a constant kind of, which is also the reason why this doesn't happen by Friday at five o'clock. Freedom is a constant struggle. Isn't that the song? Yeah, that is true. Thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode of the Nonprofit Mastermind Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts and share with your friends. I'd also like to share a few free resources. If you're the leader of a six-figure organization and you're ready to scale to the next level of massive impact, check out my free training, Scale Your Small Nonprofit to Big Impact. It's a roadmap to getting the funding, staff, board, support, and networks you need to hit your first million dollars. You can access it at richiebabbage.com backslash ready to scale. And finally, if you'd like a little more leadership in your life, sign up for my weekly newsletter, Leadership Forward 321. Each week, I curate and share three articles, two resources, and a quote on a theme. That's all for now. Have a great week, and I'll see you back here next week for more Mastermind.